The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Monday morning again. I'm Sarah Eisen with David Faber. Welcome to Money Movers. Ahead this hour, stocks on a seven-week streak, but is a warning in the technicals waiting? Our guest says the burden of proof now falls to the bears. Renaissance Macro Chairman Jeff DeGraff is coming up. And the CEO of PG&E is here, or will be here at Post 9, on the recovery of the business. Her controversial plan to put California's power lines underground. Later, call it pretzel logic. A resilient consumer stayed snacking during the height of inflation. CEO of Utz joins us with his outlook for 2024. All right, let's begin with uh, that red hot market, or at least what has been certainly a very uh, nice move in the market. You can see even over the last week, a little less than 3%. 71% of the S&P, by the way, has hit 20-day highs. That's just in the last week. That's only happened six times since 1957. Whoa. That was even before I was born. Wow, Sarah. long time ago. Imagine that. That's why it's red hot. <laughs> Renaissance Macro Chairman and CEO Jeff DeGroff joins us. He's here to uh, discuss, as we always ask, Jeff, can the rally keep going? So what do you think? Well, that, uh, that stat's an important stat. Uh, if we look at that, David, historically, I mean, those times that it's happened, right, the six other times that it's happened since 1957, um, you know, out of that, the annualized, I'm sorry, the six-month return um, out the next six months was up 14%. So that annualizes a little better than 28%. Um, you know, you might get a pullback, you might get a pause. But again, uh, as Sarah said, the burden of proof is, is absolutely on the bears here. And history, internal momentum, uh, which is really important, um, has really confirmed. And we think, and we wrote a note late last week that it implies escape velocity for the S&P. Um, that was happening while we were in an uptrend, so that's good news. I do think that this is uh, has been yield dependent, but um, that still looks to us to be good news as well with the banks and the REITs and the like. So I think there's more to go here. Uh, yeah, you're really positive. I mean, what would give you any concern then if there is any to be had? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the move in real yields, which took us from about 250 basis points in real yields, right? So that's the difference between uh, inflation and nominal. Um, that, um, that's been significant from 250 down to somewhere around 160, 165. Uh, and that's, that's driven a lot of what we've seen in equities. And, and rightfully so, that should happen. Um, if that's wrong, if, that, you know, if that's just a, a mistake or miscalculation on the market's part, then that would be a problem. I don't think that's a high probability event. When we look at, at the history of, of real yields above 250, um, that tends to be fairly restrictive. Um, so once you get there, it's not that you gravitate or linger there. Um, so I think that's good news. But there's no doubt that if, if you're going to tell me that 10-year yields are going back to 5%, we're going to have a, a problem with our equity call. But the, the thing that's encouraging about those 20-day highs is it really implies breadth, right? It's not about the Magnificent Seven. It's actually about 
everything else, the other 493 stocks. And so when you get that, that's good news for small cap. That's good news for micro cap. That's good news for risk assets. And you know, I, I would say tactically, maybe something to be concerned about. I don't think it's right here. That might happen in February um, is a little bit of this animal spirit nature coming back in. Maybe it gets a little frothy, but you know, right here, I think that's still um, that's still more the outlier than it is the base case. But do we need bond yields to keep falling for the equity market to keep rallying? Not really, Sarah. It's a great question. The the work that we've done shows that really uh, the the yields above about 225, real yields, I should say, 225 to 250 start to really work against equities. Um, once you're below those levels, you actually have pretty good returns. The further you drop below those levels, the better the returns. So obviously, um, there's something there. But I think as long as we stay at below 450, for the most part, on the nominal on the nominal 10-year yield, uh, I think we're in pretty good shape. If we can drop this to 350, that might be a long putt, admittedly. But, um, you know, if we drop it to 350, that's, you know, that's very good news for the equity markets. I think if we're stable somewhere around or slightly below 4%, I think that's good news because now the earnings story will start to kick in. Now the confidence story will come back and all those things are likely to play uh, for the equity markets in the next six months. What about the, the your believer in the breath, the broadening out? We've seen it in the small caps. I think they're up 9.5% so far this month. What, what sectors are left behind? People look at the REITs. They've made a big comeback. The regional banks make, make a big comeback. We're, where would you be buying if you believe there's more to go? Well, I do think that there's more to go in the regionals. I do think there's more to go in the REITs. And th those have been very, very neglected for a long time now, right? I mean, it was kind of the the um, uh, the cherry on top of the Sunday was the Silicon Valley Bank issue nine months ago. So th those have been left for dead, which is good news. You know, one area that hasn't moved as much, um, it looks good in our long-term work. We're not seeing any momentum. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're momentum players, so we want to endorse momentum in these situations. But we haven't seen it in healthcare yet. There are some areas of healthcare that are starting to show some improvement. Biotech has, has shown some improvement. Some of the med tech stuff has shown some improvement. Um, they're not breakouts yet, but that's one of the areas that we think has the potential to do well in 2024 mm. that hasn't yet established the type of momentum um, that uh, we're seeing in the banks, that we're seeing in the REITs, and obviously in some of these other areas of the marketplace. Really quick, Jeff, when was the last time you were this bullish? Well, I mean, look, you know, I know David hasn't seen it since 1957, and I haven't either, so That's I can't funny. recall he, the last time. He thinks that I tease him about his age. He, he brought it on himself. <laughs> I know. Well, I just That's did it true. to get I, ahead I, of her. I, I, I just did it to get it. ahead of her. Yeah, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry, we, we were interrupted you. the last time you, you were as bullish, 1957? Yeah. Uh, no, no. I mean, I wasn't even there uh, at that time. So, um, you know, the last time I think we were as bullish, we had a big call in March of 20, uh, 2009, um, you know, when we saw that momentum and I would put the momentum today, I, you know, hold on to your hats. I know that sounds crazy. I would put the momentum today, the internal signals, forget the narrative, right? But the internal signals, as we just objectively look at the market, very similar to some of those wow. things that we wow. saw in 2009. So That's we were 2009 when the S&P bottomed at what, 660 or something like that? Yeah. You know, the devil's number, right? Um, but look, that, that was an oversold condition. So we're not we're not coming off of that. So it probably doesn't have the same type of thrust. But in terms of the alignment, the constellation, uh, that's what looks most interesting to us is that this alignment, this change, um, this broadening out and this thrust. Again, I, I use the word escape velocity because that's a lot of the math that we use to, to look at it um, is really, really unusual. And it's historically very, very bullish. So that's how we're thinking about it. All right. That's quite a statement. Jeff DeGraff, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Renaissance Macro. We'll hold you to it, as, as David likes to say.
Always do. do. I don't know. You told the Nikola founder. You told him to. I did, but he's going to be in jail. Right. All right. (laughs) Different story. Can't really hold him to much of anything. Meantime, let's talk a little steel, shall we, this morning? Because uh, we do have a big deal. It's one we've been telling you uh, might be coming or would be coming, uh, given the robust auction that took place for U.S. Steel. But frankly, few people uh, who are investing here on the expectation that you would get a deal that would be a premium above where the stock price was expected you'd get 55 bucks a share in cash. But that's what Nippon. And again, there's a name, by the way, that did not figure into many people's speculation as well. We knew Cleveland Cliffs was interested. We knew as well that ArcelorMittal was interested. We knew there might be interest from Nippon, but uh, I had not at least had any real reporting that indicated they were going to be there at this price. They are. They get the deal done at 55. A couple important things to note here as well. They're going to honor all the agreements, of course, between U.S. Steel and its unions. They're going to retain the name and the headquarters in Pittsburgh. It's a price they're paying without real cost synergies. You know, Cleveland Cliffs and U.S. Steel, there's a lot of potential synergy there. There was some antitrust question as well. Here, not as much, given Nippon doesn't really have a significant presence in the U.S. It's going to cause some sort of uh, uh, significant market share domestically in the U.S. Steel business. Maybe there is a concern, though, with the unions, at least given what we heard from them in the last hour of the USW coming out with a statement in which it basically said uh, that they a, were not uh, told about the potential deal. And they say that's a violation of their partnership agreement that required U.S. still to notify them. And then they went on to say as well that uh, they're not sure that Nippon understands the full breadth of the obligations of all of their agreements. And they don't know whether it has the capacity to live up to our existing contract. So, Sarah, there's a little bit of doubt for you, but the stock is up dramatically. And again, this is a stock price that already reflected expectations of a potential deal, given what we told people was a very robust auction. Cleveland Cliffs is happy, too. Well, they, they're not necessarily happy, but the shareholders are today. Yeah. Yeah, didn't get it. CEO of PG&E is coming up next on the recovery of that business and the outlook for utilities in 2024 as it reinstates its dividend and is now implementing an AI strategy. We're back in just a moment. Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. A big holiday shopping season shaping up for the beauty stocks in particular. Ulta, Elf, Cody, even Estee Lauder. Our Courtney Reagan here to explain why beauty is the beast this year, Courtney. Yes, yeah, Sarah, you know, much of retail's performance has been pretty nuanced. Even within categories this year, you can see performance vary really widely. But one area with nearly persistent strength is beauty. It's a beast. And while beauty is often a top gifting category and big for self-gifting, as consumers take advantage of rare discounts to stock up on their favorite products, between November 1st and December 16th this year, global online sales for skincare and makeup up 10%, and other beauty and health sales are up 16%. This is according to sales. Force. 
And this compares to sales across the board, which are up just 3% in that same time frame. Now, younger consumers are spending more on cosmetics, skincare, and fragrances, according to Piper Sandler's biannual teen survey. Social media has tweens even interested in ingredients like retinol and facial acids, which has drawn its own controversy, to be fair. Beauty marketing and its acceptance is even crossing gender lines more often, too. So that total addressable market's getting bigger. Interestingly, two of the larger pure play beauty retailers, Ulta and Sephora, have divergent pricing strategies according to years of web scraping analysis by Vertical Knowledge. Alta's deals are the best during the holidays, while Sephora's prices are often the highest this time of year. Both, however, have average selling prices in 2023 compared to prior years. Now, the strength in beauty preceded the holidays, with nearly all companies exposed to the category calling it out as a top performer during the last round of quarterly reports. Shares have reflected the trend with Bath & Body Works, Sally Beauty, Elf, Ulta, Estee Lauder, Cody, all up to double digits over the last month, outperforming the XRT retail ETF, which in itself is up 12%. The S&P 500, Sarah, up 4.5% in that same period of time. So beauty, really getting a lot of bang for your buck there if you're an investor and perhaps if you want some under your Christmas tree too. Back over to you. Yeah, I was in Sephora this weekend, packed yeah, to your point. Right. My anecdotal evidence. Thank you, Courtney. Courtney Thanks. Reagan. Let's turn to utilities. It's been a rough year for the sector, but our next guest has been outperforming the trend. Take a look at shares of PG&E, up more than 7% on the year, looking to attract even more investors after recently reinstating its dividend for the first time since 2017. Joining us here at Post 9 is PG&E CEO Patty Pope. It's great to have you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So you have been doing quite a cleanup job. Yeah, it's, it's been good. We've been reducing physical and financial risk at the company. We've been uh, we've reduced our wildfire risk by 94 percent with real technology, real infrastructure. It's a very um, it's really gratifying to see how well the team has delivered. How have you reduced the wildfire risk? Because that's what people think of you now. And the last time you were majorly in the headlines, PG&E and the bankruptcy. Yeah, well, I would say uh, s several key um, enablers. One, our technology that we've deployed to de-energize lines within a tenth of a second whenever there's a contact in a high fire risk condition. We also have taken the entire service area and broken it into two kilometer blocks. We have real-time monitoring of weather stations and cameras, AI-enabled cameras, to identify exactly what's happening in each and every one of those two kilometer blocks. And we can de-energize the lines proactively, have uh, situational awareness, have automatic response. It's an incredible, incredible advancement in safety technology deployment to keep people safe. Is that using the generative AI already or that's something you're, you're working on too? Yeah, it yeah. uses, uh, it's been using AI for both wildfire modeling to understand if there were an ignition, what would happen? Where would it spread? Where do we need to have resources? And so the, the partnership with our fire resources across the state and our technology have dramatically changed the risk profile of California. But putting the wires underground would really eliminate risk, That's the right? Ultimate. And you, you haven't been approved. You got your rate plan approved by California regulators, but not that. No, they did approve. They approved 1,200 miles of undergrounding, which is the next three-year tranche. And then the legislature passed a law last year to set up a 10-year undergrounding plan because we all know a longer-term infrastructure plan will provide lower costs for customers. So we're on track. We uh, had a plan to deliver 350 miles underground, which is more than double we have ever done before, and the team has completed that task. We're very proud of uh, the work that we're doing to both make people safe and keep them energized. That's the key to undergrounding. 
it is a wildfire safety, but it's also a resilience measure. And I think we're all experiencing uh, more extreme weather. When you have more extreme weather, you need infrastructure that's designed for those extreme conditions. Undergrounding in certain applications is the perfect choice and the lowest cost choice for customers. Now, what, what's happening on pricing? Because it feels like electricity has been a big a big source of inflation in recent years. Yeah, well, we're pretty pleased to say that in our four-year general rate case, it was just approved. So for investors, that gives the next three years of revenue certainty. That's a, that's a big win for investors. We also were able to protect customers and have only an average of 2 to 4% in the bills for each of those years. When you compare that to inflation, that means through our cost savings program, and we have a, a, a industry-leading lean operating system, which we've deployed. I learned about in my early days in automotive. We've deployed it now to the utility. That lean operating system is delivering 2 to 4% uh, percent bill increases, but that's in the face of this 6 to 8% inflation. We've absorbed inflation, reduced cost, and delivered this very important infrastructure. Honey, what about increasing capacity? I mean, when I think about California, for example, and the mandates for EV purchases and what that's going to mean when everybody's plugging in their automobile, not yeah. to mention we talk generative AI, the computing power needed, the data centers that are yeah. consuming so much energy. Is it a concern for you in California, and should it be a concern nationwide as well for other utilities? I'd say it's a win for California, and it's a win for utilities to have that added growth with the technology. For the first time ever, we can optimize demand. We never could before, so you just have to build bigger infrastructure. Now we can build the necessary infrastructure, but balance supply and demand. EVs are the best thing that's ever happened to the grid. They will provide dynamic both supply and demand. That's why we're partnering with the automakers on bi-directional charging so we can take energy from the vehicles back to the grid at a peak demand, which is occasionally. And every other day of the year, we have absolutely at least 40% excess capacity to deliver to vehicles. I think the, the fear that people have is actually misplaced. It will enable all that added new electric demand will enable the lowest cost transition to a decarbonized economy. It will allow actually your household spend on energy. If you think of energy as gasoline, natural gas, and electricity, your household spend on energy will go down, maybe up to 40% with the energy transition to electricity. Because you're going to be sending it back to the grid? Yes, and because electricity is more efficient than fossil fuels. Right. Right. So because of the efficiency, you actually get a cost savings over time. But your plan over time, you don't need to build enormous amount of capacity? We I mean, have, again, back to the uh, data centers, for example, which just consumes so much electricity. Yeah, power. we'll have to build some, but we'll be able to also leverage that. To We have excess power, almost free power at noon, almost every day in California. We can leverage that power and that capacity to deliver. We will have to build some, and that's what's the win for both customers and investors. We'll have, in fact, at PG&E, we have industry-leading rate-based growth, which is what drives earnings in the utility model, that's, and that leads to industry-leading earnings growth at around 10%. That's what funds the infrastructure, but we can keep the cost low for customers with our simple affordable model and our lean operating system. So I think it's a big win for customers and investors. Grow the grid, keep people safe, and affordable. How much work are you doing to convince investors that are still, you know, wary of the bankruptcy and the wildfire risk? I know 
Kramer's been a, a fan and you've turned around the stock, reinstated the dividend, though some, some investors wanted more. Yeah. So how much, how much work are you doing to convince them that it's a sector that it's safe to invest in? Well, definitely, I think uh, the question about the uh, ability to invest in, in California has been on investors' minds. And as you can see, we have bucked the trend of the sector, I think, because that message is getting through that California is open for business, that PG&E is the place for the industry-leading earnings growth, rate-based growth, and affordability for customers. All right, Patty, thank you very much. Keep us posted on the story. Thank you. Great to be with you. The CEO of PG&E. When we come back, the French finance minister highlights from our exclusive conversation last hour. Coming up next in the European close, Dow's marching higher, up now 77 points, high of the morning. I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor... State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. European markets mostly trading lower this morning. The stock 600 just below the flat line after four straight weeks of gains for Europe. FTSE is the outperformer in the UK amid gains in energy names as crude oil rallies. Staying with France, I spoke with the French finance minister earlier this morning. I asked him about the ECB's recent decision to stop raising rates, what it means for the economy. Listen. I think that's good news for all of us, not only for Europe, but I think for growth everywhere in the world. We are exiting the inflation crisis. And we have been very successful, both the US and Europe, to get out of this inflation crisis in less than two years. We have a soft landing, both in the US and in Europe. That's very good news. You know, everybody was explaining one or two years ago, well, it will be a mess, it will be a nightmare, it will be a crash for all Western economies. It has not been the case. And we took the right decisions. The ECB took the right decisions. The Fed took the right decisions. We have had a very coordinated approach among all European countries. The result is here. We are exiting the inflation crisis. Now it's time to invest and to be successful on artificial intelligence, fight against climate change, and defense, because there is a need also to invest more in defense. Do you think that that France specifically can avoid a hard landing, a recession, even with sort of increasing geopolitical headwinds and other issues still out there? There won't be any uh, hard landing in France. We still have growth, we are creating jobs, we are on the right track, and we are exiting the inflation crisis. The single point on which we all have uh, some concern uh, would be on any escalation on the Middle East conflict, of course. So that's why we clearly need to avoid any escalation in the Middle East conflict, because the impact on growth, the impact on jobs creation, and the impact on uh, the global wealth everywhere in the world would be, I think, very detrimental. France will not have a hard landing, said very definitively. The minister was in town today making the case for U.S. companies and investors to go into France, saying the country is now offering incentives to invest there, especially in the green sector. We had a good exchange, David, about why, why there's no chat GPT of Europe, why, why they don't have an open AI. And that's something that France in particular and the Macron administration is trying to address and attract business, innovation. But they need growth. They haven't had a lot of that. No, we talked about that the other day. Overall, we talk, I, I mentioned the EU's growth rate, which is minimal. 
over the last 15 years. Yeah, and part of it of is they haven't attracted a lot of investment, and no. they've been burdened with regulations, which is another thing we talked about. You can get more on. And it's CNBC. hard to make investments. I mean, I know from example covering the wireless industry, for example, in Europe, it's very favorable to consumers. Right. But but now they were ahead of us for years. When you go back 15 mm. years ago, and their standards and everything else, and they fall fell far behind us in part because, because of regulation. Because the companies don't want to make the investment. It's yeah. the, the the invested capital is just not worth doing because you can't get a return given the parameters of regulation. Macron's been sort of pitching this to U.S. business and investors for years now. I asked whether it's working. The minister said it is. We're, we've been able to add jobs. We've been able to create. Um, new startups, but they're clearly, they want to do more. And that's why he's here. Yeah, interesting. All right, another story uh, that will also take us abroad this morning is what is happening or perhaps is not happening in the Red Sea. Ali Aruzi is in Cairo and can bring us up to date on what exactly is going on. Ali. Hi, good morning. That's right. BP is now the latest company to suspend its vessels traveling through the Red Sea after a string of attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. The oil giant has blamed the deteriorating security situation in the region. And look, the Houthi attacks on vessels and shipping lines in the region have significantly increased in recent days, with almost daily attacks being launched. The Houthis say that they firmly back the Palestinian cause and won't let up on their attacks or allow ships to reach Israeli ports until food and meds can get into Gaza and the hostility ends. Now, the most recent attack took place this morning, where a Norwegian-owned vessel, the MS Swan Atlantic was hit by an unidentified object while in the Red Sea off the coast of Yemen, despite being having no links to Israel. On Saturday alone, at least 16 missiles and drones were launched towards uh, vessels and towards Israel. The USS Kearney shot down 14 of them, while a British destroyer shot down another one. Now, the Houthi objective seems to be to ratchet up hostilities with a serious escalation of maritime tensions in these vital waterways to put Israel and the U.S. under pressure. And despite threats of retaliation from the U.S. and Israel, the Houthis say that they're in a strong defensive position to respond to any attacks against them. And look, their attacks our disrupt, disruption in the region is having tangible effects on commerce. Several of the world's largest shipping firms have already suspended vessel passage in the region. They no longer pass through the Bab al-Mandab Strait, a vital waterway. Any ships passing through the Suez Canal uh, to or from the Indian Ocean have to go through the Bab al-Mandab Strait. And this is hugely significant, as about 17,000 ships and 10% of global trade passes through there every day. Many of the ships now take a massive detour through the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa to avoid the Red Sea. This is having a significant impact on insurance costs, the availability of oil and other essential goods. Now, at the moment, the U.S. seems reluctant to attack the Houthis for fear of widening the war and provoking Iran and drawing them in. Uh, what the U.S. may be planning is to launch an expanded maritime protection force to ensure vessels have a safe passage. Guys? Well, that pressure is going to only increase on the U.S. to respond. Thank you very much, Ali Aruzi. We will be speaking, by the way, on this story with Maersk CEO tomorrow right here on Money Movers, one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. In the meantime, it's time now for a CNBC News update. Pippa Stevens has that for us. Morning, Pippa. Hey, Sarah. A Delaware man who plowed into President Biden's motorcade last night has been charged with drunk driving. Wilmington police described the incident as an accidental collision. It happened as President Biden left a dinner with staff at his campaign headquarters. 
He and the First Lady were not heard. Two court hearings for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny have been postponed until January. Navalny's allies are raising alarms over his whereabouts after they say they have been unable to track him for nearly two weeks. On Friday, Russia's prison service said the Vladimir Putin critic is being moved to a new facility in another part of the country. And an evening dress worn by Princess Diana sold for $1.1 million at auction, 11 times higher than its estimate. That sets a fashion record for the most expensive dress of the late princess to ever sell at auction. The auction house says she was seen wearing the dress publicly twice in the mid-80s. David, back to you. Thank you. Guggenheim is bullish on Snap, that is the stock headed into next year. It has upgraded the stock to a buy. We're going to tell you why the uh, analyst, at least, thinks that stock can keep up the momentum. It's had a very good year so far this year as well. That'll be right after the break. A call from the desk of Guggenheim grabbing our attention this morning. The firm upgrading Snap to buy, citing a strong ad environment in 2024. Price target goes to $23. Stock heading higher this morning, adding to the year-to-date gains of more than 90%. The analyst behind the call joins us now, Michael Morris of Guggenheim. Is it, is it the overall ad spending environment, Michael, that you're predicting next year or something Snap is doing specifically to address it and take advantage? Uh, sure. Well, thank you for having me this morning uh, on the call. And the answer to your question is really both. Um, I think that the investors overall still probably underappreciate uh, that the advertising marketplace was softer in 2023 uh, than the stock marketplace. And I think as we see uh, stocks and, and the market overall at all-time highs exiting the year, I actually think advertisers are going to have increased confidence as they move into 2024, uh, spending on what is still a very healthy consumer. With respect to Snap, uh, Snap was a little slower than its peers uh, to make the investments to improve their system and offering to advertisers following some of the disruption that took place in 2021 with changes to Apple's privacy standards. Uh, that has, uh, I believe, has improved, but you really haven't seen it deliver for Snap yet because of that weaker 2023 ad environment I talked about. So as I look to 2024, I see a healthier market overall, and I see that really benefiting Snap as the improvements is, that they have made pay off yeah. for them specifically. Well, I know you're. I know you expect the gains to continue, and you're still bullish, Michael. But the, your target going from nine to 23, I do wonder how much pressure you felt to just play a little catch up here after the run it's had. Yeah, I mean, you, you always do. Uh, you, you can't help that. But I think that anytime things change in the market, you have to be willing to take a fresh look at how you're looking at the stock. And what I think has changed is just an increased confidence that we can be moving toward, whether you want to call it a soft landing or anything like that, an environment where the consumer continues to be healthy in the coming year. I think when you look at consumer spending over Black Friday and the Cyber Five, I uh, Advertisers cannot deny the importance of being in front of the consumer. I think that digital offerings continue to strengthen. In the case of Snap, I mentioned some steps that they took to strengthen both their platform offering, their ability to target, as well as their measurement. But in addition, they're striking new partnerships. They do have a partnership with Amazon coming online. And we think things like that will take what is a very strong user base that has yet to be monetized at the level of some of the larger peers and help close that monetization gap, which will drive outperformance at Snap. 
And you don't feel like Snap has sort of just missed their moment in some way? I mean, I can remember not that many years ago, my kids obviously were big Snap users, and now it's all TikTok or even Reels, and obviously still Instagram. Not Snap as much. Yeah, I don't think so. Perhaps your kids are an anomaly. But you know, what I would say is this. When we look at the user base, both the, the disclosed users as well as our first-party data analysis intra-quarter, Snap in November still hit an all-time high in, in usership and uh, advertiser reach. So the user base, that rough, that, that kind of gross number is still there. But I still think the messaging platform is an incredibly dedicated user base. Uh, the company disclosed that they saw increases in engagement on a year-over-year basis in the most recent quarter. And I think that that is not the problem. I do think that the issue for Snap, and this is where we had been on the sideline for a while, is getting users onto the monetizable surfaces, right? Messaging is really what Snap continues to be all about, and it's a more difficult product to message. As you have those users spending more time on stories, more time using lenses, things like that, those are areas of monetization. They really need to get other products like Spotlight and Map working for the stock to really ramp. Our target right now just assumes that they're going to be able to execute on the stories function without really that incremental driver. We see optionality there. Got it. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the call today. Michael Morris of Guggenheim. All right. Another area we want to highlight for you today is action in the insurance industry. We've got a bull case on uh, Progressive, a bear call on Chubb. Contessa Brewer joins us now tell us what's going on. Hi, David. Hi, Sarah. Yeah. <clears throat> so Progressive just reported monthly results for November that beat expectations. Its margins are improving. It cut costs, avoided catastrophes, and it's seeing, as I said, improving margins. So Wells Fargo analyst Elise Greenspan raised the price target to 176 from 144. She writes she expects more policies in force in the new year. That's the Progressive case. Chubb, on the other hand, gets a downgrade to equal weight. Price target cut to 240 from 253, even after it's had a banner year. Greenspan writes that she anticipates premium prices in the commercial lines to decline more in line with loss costs. But Chubb is sitting on a pile of cash. And if it's deployed in buybacks, say, that could boost the share price. It's just really interesting because you have the tale of two lines here where Auto insurers have just been hit by severity and frequency claims. It looks like the data seems to indicate that's improving somewhat. And because the auto insurers have gone in and requested more rates, but Progressive especially, instead of spending money on advertising, decided to really look at efficiency in the system, had margins that were impressive. Yeah, although they still spend an enormous amount on advertising. It does seem like that, doesn't it? Well, well like, it's it can't, everywhere. It yeah. can't not, yeah. But the other thing that I think that's interesting leading into 2024 is that reinsurance really drove pricing and, and the whole insurance market for 2023. Those renewals come due on the 1st of January. And Elise Greenspan said in her note that she's anticipating we're going to see another rise of like 5%. Now, that's lower than the massive increases that we saw this year, but it would still have an effect on pricing. So she's looking at some of her top picks are like Everest Group um, and RNR, uh, Renaissance Re. So that because they don't they're not regulated the same as insurers are and they have real opportunities. Thank you, Contessa. Always making insurance interesting for us. (laughs) When we come back, Adobe scrapping its $20 billion deal for Figma. After all that, what went wrong and why? Stay with us. 
Adobe terminating its $20 billion deal to acquire the design software maker Figma. Let's get out west to Deirdre Bosa. That is the subject of today's Tech Check. D. Hey, David, good morning. Let's talk about what it means for both parties going forward. Adobe, it's going to be just fine. Figma, though, perhaps its future, a little less certain. When the deal was announced 15 months ago, there was sticker shock at the price. Adobe was willing to pay double Figma's valuation at the time and 50 times its annual recurring revenue. But we're trying to get this deal done. Chantanu and the Adobe team, it hasn't slowed down. It's very much been a part of the Wall Street generative AI conversation with Firefly, and it has continued to develop Adobe Express, a real-time collaboration tool that does some of what Figma was supposed to do for the company. Plus, Adobe shares they are up over 60% since the deal was announced. And a major overhang regulatory uncertainty that is now removed. There's even hope, guys, that Adobe could use the cash that it earmarked for Figma for an expanded buyback. So shares up nearly 2% today. For Figma itself, though, this is a very tough crossroads. On top of the $20 billion that Adobe was going to pay for it, there was an historic $2.3 billion retention package for Figma CEO Dylan Field and employees, leading to jokes here in the Bay Area that drinks were on Figma employees for the rest of 2022. Now, however, it may be the Figma employees needing those consolation drinks tonight, and they are unlikely to see those kinds of terms again. And potential other acquirers, like, say, a Microsoft, are probably less likely to do a deal given the regulatory challenges. The IPO market also, guys, not exactly open. And Figma's closest competitor, Canva, has not been in regulatory limbo for the last 15 months. I did just get off the phone with a Figma board member, Andrew Reed. He is partner at Sequoia, which first invested back in 2019, the Series C round. He said that Figma, though, has not been standing still either over the past 15 months. He notes the company has been releasing its own AI plugins, and earlier this year it acquired Diagram. That is a startup building at the intersection of design and AI. He said that big tech companies like Microsoft, Apple, and Google, they continue to use Figma within their design teams. And of course, that $1 billion breakup fee will help them be, as Reid put it, firmly on the offensive over the next year. Now, on the regulatory front, guys, there is building frustration here in Silicon Valley. One investor called the Adobe Figma process long, opaque, and Byzantine. And that sort of is a feeling that has been building and sort of feeds into that question, what now for Figma? Maybe an IPO in a few years from now. But again, that market is not exactly wide open. No. Uh, yeah, the UK uh, antitrust regular and the EU not to mention, of course, in other deals, as you well know, facing uh, yeah. serious scrutiny here from the FTC or the DOJ. What about Adobe, though, uh, D? You know, uh, you mentioned at the time they paid this enormous price. Their stock went down a lot. And then they spent a lot yeah. of time educating their investor base on why this was helpful to them for their strategic uh, posture, so to speak. So what do they do now that they're not going to own this thing? You know, David, I think the world has changed so much in the last two years with the generative AI that on one hand, yes, they were trying to justify this deal to some shareholders that might have been skeptical, particularly on that high price tag. But they've also been developing internally, right? I think Firefly has very much been part of this generative AI conversation and provided perhaps another thesis for the company and shown that they can build organically. I think that was the fear when Adobe made this play for Figma, that it was somehow falling behind. And Figma was, you know, really beloved inside of Microsoft. And there was this idea that maybe Microsoft would get a leg up on Adobe. But Adobe has certainly answered back over the last few years under Shantanu Narayan and been able to prove to the street that they can still innovate and produce these products very separately from a Figma. So I think Figma maybe occupied a different space a few years ago. Got it. Deirdre, thank you. 
CEO of Utz joining us on the other side of the break as consumers' appetite for snacks remains healthy. We'll talk about the demand outlook in 2024 live from the company's Investor Day. Stay with us. Will consumers stay hungry for salty snacks in 2024? Our next guest oversees Utz Brands. Doesn't see the appetite slowing down anytime soon. Let's bring in Utz CEO Howard Friedman joining us on the back of the company's Investor Day. Howard, good to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Sarah. Nice to be with you. You too. So what are you telling investors about demand? If you look at the stock price this year, had a had a big run up and then a and then a big sell-off, slowly coming back here. What do you see? Yeah, well, it's certainly been an exciting year. I mean, one of the things that uh, that we continue to stay focused on really is the long term. And as you look over the next couple of years, uh, you know, we announced a, our view of uh, that by 2026, we'll have a four and a half percent, four to five percent CAGR on our top line, uh, dry, approaching a 16 percent EBITDA margin and getting our and double digit uh, EPS growth. So, you know, we're, we're very excited about the future, the opportunity that we have to continue to meet and exceed our uh our growth ambitions and uh, to introduce our brands to consumers around the country. What's happening on prices for the entire food space lately? I mean, it was all about higher prices, inflation. That was good for the top and bottom line. But now as that reverses, what do you expect? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things I, I think that has been healthy about our category over time is that, you know, price has always been about half of the story. Uh, the other half of the story has really been about volume growth. And for us specifically, you know, we, we definitely see uh, a, a large opportunity to continue our growth behind our volume and behind our geographic expansion. You know, prices seem to be moderating for sure as the category normalizes and, uh, and you know, consumers uh, continue to opt into our, our products because we have a wide range of products at pretty much every price point. But what happens to margins with input costs decreasing? Yeah, well, so I mean, look, a couple of things for us. I think that uh, one is that as we look at as we look at our margin opportunity over time, uh, really productivity and the ability to you know, recover our uh, any routine in inflation that comes with inputs uh, is kind of where we remain uh, optimistic that we can continue to do. Uh, your company, like it or not, may be you know a target of those who believe that there will be diminished appetite from uh, the widespread use of uh, weight loss drugs, GLP-1s. How do you answer that question in terms of what impact, if any, that will have? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a. I think for us specifically, and really for the category, I've been in the consumer space for almost 30 years now, and there are sort of three major trends that I think continue to be true in our categories. One is really around snacking. Americans are snacking more than ever before and continue to do so. The second is really to your point about weight management. And the third is is in taste. And so, you know, as I think about those things as a marketer, as a, a person who builds brands, as consumer preferences change, it's our job to continue to do that as well. If it means more uh, satiating snacks or smaller pack sizes, it's our job to, uh, to address those changes and, and meet that demand. In terms of what's happening more recently, you know, it really is a very early stages story. I've read the same things uh, that you have, but for us at, at this point, uh, the snacking and the taste trend really continue to endure. No, so no impact yet that you're seeing from some of those drugs well, and habit changes. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think it's. I think overall, we're not seeing much yet. We see consumer behaviors shift. You know, potentially they're moving in, in and out of uh, either smaller pack sizes if uh, if that's where they want to be. Uh, or in some cases, larger sizes as well. But at, at this point, we feel pretty good that you know our story really does remain around uh, expansion and 
even if there is a near-term bump for some consumers, we believe that the opportunity in front of us uh, to grow our volumes as we continue to expand westward uh, is really going to overwhelm any of the rest of the story. What about where they're buying, Howard? Have you seen any shift in terms of, we hear from the Kroger's of the world that consumers are looking for value more. Are you seeing changing, changing channels in terms of where the growth is? Yeah, look, I, I think what we see is consumers, and, and it's pretty normal from uh, at this kind of stage of where they are, they do tend to shop all of the channels, whether they are looking for value and go into some uh, of the uh, hard discounters or the value channel, or they do move into club stores if they want to buy more pantry inventory. Um, fortunately for us, we're well represented in all of those channels. And as our portfolio uh, continues to grow and continues to expand, we expect that, that uh, we'll see growth across all of them. All right, Howard, thank you for the update. Appreciate it. Talking to our viewers. Thanks for having me. You talk to investors. Howard Friedman of Utz. Can't get enough of the cheese balls, which I buy in the, you know, well, the big jars. Apparently we've got a bunch over there. Okay, I'm looking good. at them right there. They I'll sent take them wherever I can get them. them. Here, just bring it over. Let's get it started <laughs> right now. There you go. Right. I could I could devour that in like a week, probably. Oh, I, well, a week. A week. Right. A week. It's, it's kind of disgusting. It's a lot of cheese balls. Uh, just taking a look at the markets, David. We continue to stay strong. We do. And, and rise even higher at throughout the morning. This comes on the back of seven straight weeks of gains already to a record high in the Dow. We're, what, 2% away from an all-time high on the S&P? I did note that at least many of the Magnificent Seven were having good mornings. Meta was, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA. Apple, though, down in part because, again, a concern of a Bloomberg story about, you know, new government bans or bans on government employees in terms of using iPhones. Uh, but Magnificent Seven has a bit to it as well. But the, the story is that it's broader than that now. Yes. It's gone into small caps. It's energy stocks are doing well today on the back of the rise in crude oil prices. We get some earnings later this week, like FedEx and Nike, that we'll be watching as well. With that, thank you, David. You're welcome. I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor... State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.